All right. Well, we want to think today about practical issues of parenting in today's world. Now, all of what we have talked about is practical, and all of what we have talked about is really the foundation for how we think about any specific issue in, in, that comes up in parenting. Um, so it's not that we say, okay, we're going to set aside the fact that we need to be loving Christ and we need to be living for him, and we need to follow God's design for the family because now we're going to think about what social media apps we might let our kids have eventually. It's not that we say, okay, we're going to forget the framework of discipline, training our kids, and instructing our kids to think biblically when it comes to an issue like thinking about gender or those things. No, all of those things still apply. So in some ways what we're doing today is saying how do we practically apply some of the things that we've been learning in specific contexts with a specific issue as we wrestle through that. Uh, But in some ways we're, we're saying, okay, in today's world, there are some unique and specific challenges that we face as parents today, and we want to think carefully and biblically about those things together. Ted Tripp, in the foreword to the book, The Faithful Parent, put this. He said, in the simplest of times... Raising children is an overwhelming task. These are not the simplest of times. Many voices are giving competing and often contradictory messages. The need of the hour is the timeless clarity and wisdom of the word of God. The Bible is robust, providing solid counsel, tailor-made for every era and culture. The greatest need of parents is biblical knowledge coupled with the wisdom and understanding needed to break down the application of Scripture into sensible and doable training and nurture of children. I think he's absolutely right. You know, if you uh, are, have, have been a parent for any length of time, your kids have grown, you know this is not a, a simple time to be a parent. Now, certainly every generation could, could say that and, and express that, but the challenges that come in our culture with the technology that's available, all sorts of, of things from the busyness of life to, to the pressures of things to the worldview that is presented require us to come back to the truth of God's Word and to say, okay, how do we take these truths and principles and apply them practically day by day as we seek to raise our kids? So we're going to consider several pertinent issues in today's world, both because we need to think about them carefully and to model how we as Christian parents should apply the scriptures in these areas of life. One issue on which there are very contradictory voices in our day is that of gender. It's interesting, I, I was, uh, have been teaching this class for I don't remember how many, how many years, probably in different forms, in different contexts, maybe for 10 years. And it's fascinating how on some of the issues that we're going to talk about today, gender and issues of media and technology and things, how much has changed even in that period of time. How, how the culture has, has continued to be warped in, in regards to some of these issues. And, and so they're even more critical than they were maybe, maybe 10 or 15 years ago in terms of how we think about different things. So how do we think about gender? How do you think about raising boys and girls? Now, at, uh, historically, this would have been primarily a discussion of how do you prepare your boys to be things like husbands and fathers? 
How do you prepare your girls to be things like mothers and wives? And, and how, how do we think in those terms? Just that foundation today in our world is totally eroded. And so we have to, to go a step back from that. We still have to do that, but we have to go a step back to say, man, our world is, is undermining even the idea of your boy being a boy. Like the, the, the world is telling you, you need to not even, even have that level of conviction and confidence, and it's madness. And we need biblical clarity to think of these things. So how do we, how do, we do that? Let me give you a couple of steps to take as we think through these issues, and really, again, a framework for how to think about any issue on which the culture is, is speaking contrary to the Word of God. The first is we need to develop a vision for biblical masculinity and femininity. We really need to understand what does the Bible say about these things? What, what does the Scripture teach, and not just at a basic, um, you know, level, but really a robust understanding of, of what undergirds these truths and why they matter so that we can both um, uh, apply those things in our own lives and instruct those uh, in our families, our children. This begins really for us by understanding the root issue related to gender, which is God as creator. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. We looked at this passage briefly in our first lesson. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and, and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. We see in chapter 2 a, a specific zeroed-in view of this creation of male and female, man and woman, in verse 18 of chapter 2, where it says, that it's not good for the man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. And so verse 22 says, God fashioned into a woman the rib which he'd taken out of the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. You see, when we think about the, the root issue related to the gender crisis in our culture, it comes back to God as creator, which, which is, it's a reminder that this is about his authority, did God design and, and create us a specific way, and are we going to submit ourselves to his authority? This is why our culture that rejects God rejects gender, because God has made it this way, and according to Romans 1, people don't want to worship God, they don't want to acknowledge God, and so they, they ignore him, and they want to act like he doesn't exist, and the things he has said don't exist, and so they do insane things like reject gender. We have to help our kids to understand God as creator and God's authority before we ever get to the fact that, you know, this is what we think about gender. This is not just our opinion versus someone else's opinion. This is God as the authority. 
But it's not just God's authority. It's not just God said it so we do it and we kind of grin and bear it. It's, it's really a picture of God's goodness as well. God did not design the world in a way that was intended to say, okay, I'm just going to see if you'll do all kinds of weird things or believe all kinds of weird things so that you, I know that you trust my authority. You, you might have had a, a coach like that in high school or something or a teacher or a professor who's, who just liked their authority and they said, so I'm going to make you do some stuff that really serves no purpose just so you remember I'm in charge. And I think sometimes we can think of God that way, that he's just wanting us to, to, to show that he's in charge so we'll, he gives us a bunch of stuff to do or not do that's really arbitrary. That's not true. God is good, and he has given us what to do for our good. And so embracing God's perspective on issues like gender is not foolish or just submissive to, to God. It is a recognition that God knows best. Related to that is God's wisdom, that, that he is the one who understands us and who made us, and so we can embrace his goodness and wisdom. If you have a child who is struggling to think rightly about themselves in any way, but especially in regards to gender, but maybe even other things, how, why didn't God give me curly hair instead of he gave me, you know, straight and wiry hair, or why didn't he make me taller or shorter or however I wish I was, it's a reminder to come back to the wisdom and goodness of God as creator. And so the root issue that we have to keep coming back to as we think about biblical masculinity and femininity is God made us, he knows what's best, and he has intended us to function in a particular way according to the gender that he has given us. So God made people male and female. He made them men and women different, and he has given different roles. Although we are spiritually equal, God designed the world to function that way, and he made us to function that way. And he has given specific instruction regarding the character and roles of men and women. Now, obviously, today, we do not have time to cover all of this. We could have a six-week class on biblical masculinity and femininity, and this is one of multiple topics we want to consider today. But it's important that we as parents understand that God's word communicates not simply that your child is a boy or a girl, although it does, but it gives a, a, a robust picture of what God intends for men and women. And as parents, if we don't have that long-term vision, we're going to struggle to make the right decisions along the way and, str and struggle to teach and train towards that end. So if we don't have a healthy perspective on what God intends a godly woman to be or a godly man to be, we're going to struggle to teach and train our four-year-old son or daughter in the way that we ultimately uh, should. And so we need to consider the, the reality of what God says is to be true of men and women. Now, you understand in many ways, what, everything the Bible says applies to both men and women, right? There's not a list of like, 
sins that are okay for guys that are not okay for girls or vice versa. There's not a huge list of, of character qualities that it's like, okay, these are, are only necessary for men or only necessary for women. And so in many ways, all that the Bible says and how we parent our kids largely is going to be the same if they are boys or girls focusing on the gospel and all that the scripture says. But there are unique differences that God highlights. We saw that even in in Genesis chapter 2 where it said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable to him. In in marriage, there is a a role of of leadership that God has given to men and and a role of of help and companionship that God has given to, to women doesn't mean every relationship is to be characterized in that way. We'll talk more about that in, in a bit. But God has intended it and designed it to be that way. We could look at, at passages um, like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 that describes the role of male leadership even in the context of, of the church. Passages like Proverbs 31 that gives specific instruction about what an excellent wife looks like and and the characteristics that should be present there. We could look at at passages like 1 Peter 3 and and Ephesians 5 that talk specifically about the role of husbands and wives and and the, the unique characteristics that should define those relationships. Guys, if you and I as parents are not thinking about those things carefully, we will not parent our children the way that God intends. We need to develop a vision for biblical masculinity and femininity, a a recognition of the characteristics that God calls us to have. Now, again, it doesn't mean that Um, that there's not a general body of character that all should apply. But if you think of things like the the role of of leader in the home, what are some characteristics, uh, and maybe guys, you you can speak to this with me, what are some biblical characteristics of godly leadership as a husband? Feel free to chime in. Yeah. Love, patience, uh, a self-sacrifice for the good of others. Now, are women to self-sacrifice as well? Sure they are. But husbands are, are uniquely called to love your wives with a sacrificial love, to use your leadership position not for your own gain, but for the good of others. What else? Okay, yeah, to be obedient to Christ. Other things. Yeah, to be a, a protector and, and a leader, to have courage of conviction, to lead well, even if, if they, you know, there's, there's um, pressure to do something different than what, what God calls us to. How about wives? What are some key character qualities that allow a woman to be a godly wife, godly mother? Okay, a submissiveness. Where does that heart come from? Okay, from humility. Yeah, and First Peter connects it to hoping in God, a, a deep trust in God. You, you think of the difference in, in roles, the wives in this room who are called by God to follow you men and me. Like how much trust does that take in God to say, okay, 
I, I will do that. I will follow this guy when he's, when he's right, <laughs> when he's wrong. Like, I'm, I'm going to be submissive because I trust God in that way. What else does the scripture emphasize for godly women, wives? Okay, meekness, yeah. A, a gentleness, again, a trust in the Lord in that way. Other things? Okay, respect. Focuses on an inner beauty, not the external beauty that our world praises, but the beauty of character in those things. Again, do many of those things apply in, in other contexts with, with the other genders? Yes, they do. But those are things that God specifically says are critical in, in the context of, of marriage roles and relationships. Now, do you know that your four-year-old will one day get married and, uh, and be a wife or a mother? No, you don't. But the normal pattern is that's what you are preparing them for, and you want to be cultivating these things. So we need a, a vision for biblical masculinity and femininity. A second key thing for us, again, with this issue or any, is to recognize the attacks on biblical masculinity and femininity. It's, it's primarily our job to know the truth and to say this is what we're striving for. But we also need to be wise to recognize how this is undermined in our world. Today, we see the redefinition of gender. Again, you guys are familiar with this in our world, where even the idea that gender is a biological um, idea that, or biological reality that was, um, was created by God and is fixed is, is wrong. That's what our world says. Now we speak of gender identity, what I feel about my gender, rather than bio, the biological definition. You hear people say things like, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. No, you're not. You are a man. But this idea of, of the psychological identity, how I feel or what I think, trumping the physical reality of my body if the brain says one thing and the body says another, our culture says the brain is right, I, gender is tied more to that than it is to the physical reality, and you are hateful to say otherwise. Well, the biblical reality is gender is God-given and connected to the biological structure of one's body. If your brain says one thing and your body says another, your body is right and your brain is sinful, and you need to renew your mind into conformity to the authority and wisdom of God. We see it not only in the redefinition of gender, but in the blurring of genders. The, the idea that, you know, there really is not much of any distinction between the two. And this was the primary attack on gender probably in the last, you know, 30 years before the current redefinition of gender. You see this historically through things like the feminist movement and others that are, are seeking to say there really isn't a difference in genders. God says otherwise. He says there are distinctions. Again, each spiritually equal, each valuable in the home and, and, and church and, and culture, but different and with different roles. We see it as well and probably more common in, in, uh, in the, the church, the twisting of gender roles, the abuse and, and, and manipulation of these gender roles. Again, if you're still in Genesis, you can see the curse, that, that the, the consequence of sin that comes. Again, we've looked at this uh, briefly in the past, but in verse 16 of chapter 3, 
God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There's this twisting a a sinful desire to not function according to how God has given us, both on the the side of of women not being under the leadership of their husband, desiring to master them is the idea of that word, and husbands ruling and dominating rather than being loving, sacrificial, kind, patient, godly leaders, this idea of I get to rule, I get to reign, I get to use my authority for my own good. And so there is this twisting of roles. Sometimes it's, it's going the, the other extreme, this idea of, of extreme passivity among women, that, that all women need to submit to all men, which is not what the Bible says. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands, and that in the context of the church, there is, there is male leadership and headship. It does not say that all women submit to all other men in any context. There's so many ways that Satan would love to take God's design and say, as long as I can get this out of whack a little bit, I'm happy. We need to recognize those attacks and and to guard against those things. And then we need to intentionally cultivate biblical masculinity and femininity in our children. Again, this starts with teaching them the core issues about God as creator and his wisdom and design and his goodness and how he made them. And then fleshing out the realities of how God intends. This starts with us just modeling it. As a a father of boys, being an example of godly masculinity. As a mother of girls, being an example of that. As a father of girls, recognizing and praising the godly uh, femininity of our wife and, and of others that are godly examples. We need to model it and we need to point it out when we see it in others and, and even pointing out bad examples of it. You know, if your kids are, are watching a TV show and there's really lousy examples of what it looks like to be a, a godly man or woman, it's okay to say, you know what, that is absolutely contrary to how, how God calls us to function in that way. You know, this is kind of that, that typical um, sitcom dad, right, who's kind of an idiot and who's lazy, and who does not really lead his family, and just kind of is a passive guy who likes to joke a lot. And it's like, that's not what a godly man looks like. We need to be aware of that. We need to model it. We also need to, to not just model it, but to delight in it, to, to really be a, an example to our kids that this is good. <laughs> this is wise. This is, this is how God's made it to function, and it's a beautiful reality. We can encourage it in our kids. You know, there's a, there's a reason why historically um, there's been, you know, boys playing football and girls not, you know, and how we think about different realities. Does that mean, you know, my, my girls love throwing a football around and love watching the Cowboys, and, and we're thrilled to do those things together as a family. But there's a reason why we, we want to think carefully about what are we encouraging in our boys and in our girls, knowing how God intends them to function. We need to present the qualities of a godly man or woman to them in, in a way that is encouraging and, 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 and painting a, a picture of the beauty of God's design and, and even using the circumstances of life. You know, I think I, I have five girls. I've thought a lot more about parenting girls than I have boys. A lot of you have boys. You can talk to each other about what that looks like. But 
but I have thought more about, okay, how, how would I handle this differently if I was talking to a son rather than to my daughter? What would be the way that I would approach that? Um, you know, when, when things like um, you know, one of my kids gets injured. You know, when it's my daughter, it's like, oh, I, I am quick to console. And, and again, I'd probably do a little bit of that maybe with a son. But, but it's, there's a difference when it's like, hey, you, we want you to be a courageous leader who is a protector. And it's like, so there's a, there's a different mindset. I think there's a temptation, especially for moms, don't be offended by this, to, to kind of baby your boys. You know, don't do that. Again, don't be harsh with them. You know, don't ignore the fact that their arm's broken and things, but, but be careful that you are cultivating in them a courage and a strength of character. You know, and the reality is a, a broken bone is not the worst thing that could happen to them. You might have the opportunity to both commend their courage and confront their lack of long-term thinking. Like, I'm proud of you, son, that you are willing to jump off that 10-foot wall. But next time, think about What's going to happen at the bottom before you do that? Like, there's, there's a reason we want to help them to think in those ways. You know, I want my girls to do hard things, and, and I want them to do so partially out of a trust in me as the authority. We, we uh, were given Six Flags passes a number of years ago for Christmas, and so had the opportunity to take my girls on a lot of roller coaster rides. And, and again, there's a little difference between my daughter and if I had a son. You know, if my daughter's scared, I'm going to put my arm around her. I'm going to say, hey, you trust God, you trust Dad, we're going to get through this, it's going to be fun, and uh, maybe I'll buy you Dippin' Dots afterwards. You know, if it's a son, it's like, hey, hands in the air, we're fighter pilots, like, let's do this, you know. Um, there's just a different mindset in how we are are helping to cultivate those things. You know, we need to find these character qualities where they exist and highlight it. You know, when we see those things in our, our kids, we want to praise that. You know, praising the inward beauty of our daughters, encouraging them in their, in their external beauty as, as we have opportunity and, and is appropriate, but focusing on their inward beauty. We might need to redirect something, but don't squash it entirely. You know, you're tempted to tell your son, don't ever hit somebody. Is that, is that really true? Well, there's context where, yeah, you might need to hit somebody. Now, they're rare, and they're not, like, common, and it's not probably your sibling right now in that situation. But we want to redirect those things in a godly way towards the courage and leadership that God intends. So, Think carefully about raising boys and raising girls. And again, don't overemphasize the distinctions and, and forget that, you know, so much of parenting is consistent regardless. But do think intentionally about those things. You know, with our girls, we have sought to encourage them in the things that we hope they will get to spend their life doing, of, of being a godly mom of children and, and of, of leading and loving in the context of their household and, and those things. And so having opportunities to encourage that, some of our girls, those things come much more naturally to. We've got a couple daughters who the thought of like a kid spitting up on them is like, and it's like, well, we want to give you some opportunities. And you know, the Lord gives grace once they're your own kids and, and those things. So it's unique, but, but encouraging that and, and helping that and those things, encouraging them to, to serve in ways alongside you as a mom or wife or as a husband or father, the kinds of things that you get to do in encouraging your kids to participate in those things. 
One of the things I think that is, is unique in this area for girls especially is to think about training our kids on modesty. That's one of the roles that we have as parents is to help them think about why they want to wear the things they wear and look the way that they look. We has, as dads have a great opportunity to be uh, involved in that, helping them to understand their value is not tied to their physical appearance, and we want to encourage them to think rightly. And um, We have unique opportunities with boys on things like how they address their mom. You know, this is one of the issues that is common as boys age, is that they, they want to be... Um, have more autonomy, uh, and, and especially as they're interacting with mom. And so dads, you have a great opportunity to help them think about how they talk to their mom, how they respond to their mom as a pattern of how they will one day think about their, uh, their wife. Again, a unique, unique difference is there, but speaking respectfully to her, treating her as a lady in a way that is appropriate and kind, uh, and those things. So we want to be intentional to raise boys and girls according to God's design, according to a biblical view of masculinity and femininity. Let's think secondly about the issues of media and technology, a second key issue. And we'll get increasingly um, speedier as we go through these, don't worry. Um, Media and technology. You know, think back when you were a kid. What was some of the technology that you had in your world as a child? A doorbell, yeah, that was cool, wasn't it? People didn't even have to knock, you know, ding, ding. What else? What was technology in your world? A house phone, yes. If, if you were lucky, you had one with a really long cord so you could get a little bit of privacy and then the cordless phone came and it was like, ooh, it could be in like our home. Other things. Caller ID, where you actually knew who was going to be on the other end before you picked up the phone. Yeah. What else? A Walkman. Yeah, you could listen to your own personal music on a tape or CD player. Some of us, there's a wide age range in this class. Some of you are like, what is a Walkman? Um, Yeah, Saturday morning cartoons. And you had to actually be, like, present at the right time to watch what you wanted to watch, right? There was not an option to say it's on demand whenever. You know, one of the things that's challenging about parenting is we grew up with different technology, different media than what our kids are growing up in. Now, some of you are young enough that you still feel tech savvy and you feel ahead of the curve with your kids and their kids are young enough and you're young enough that you're still like head and shoulders above them. Um, But that does gradually change over time, and that can lead to challenges. This is a a cartoon that I I saw that I thought was kind of funny a a number of years ago. It's a a son calling his mom. He says, hi, mom, it's Peter. She says, what's up? He says, would it be okay if (laughs) saved for college? And uh, and the mom says, absolutely, thinking, would it be okay if I saved for college? And he says, so then I'll I'll claim, you said, would it be okay if I bought an Xbox with the money I've saved for college? Nice, and he says, and then she'll buy me a new cell phone. so there, there's a challenge when it comes to media and technology, how we function and think about these things as parents. And again, I want us to, to think about this specific issue, but also a framework of how we think about any. And so we, it starts with our understanding of, of media and technology. 
recognizing the truth and the realities about these things, both from a practical standpoint, understanding them, and from a biblical standpoint, understanding them. When, when we think of, of media, what we're talking about is those, those things, music, videos, things that, that, um, that the content that shapes how we think. You understand that media Movies, TV shows, even social media, all of these things are intended primarily to feed self. One author said, you know, the audience is the sun and the producer is the moon. The, the idea is the, the, the moon reflects the sun back to the audience. So when you see media, TV shows, movies, they are in one sense reflecting the culture back to us, reflecting self back to us. This is particularly heightened in social media. You know that on social medias, you don't see everything. You see the stuff that they think you want to see. It's more of what you want and more of what you are. And, and, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's shocking how that plays up. I, I, I was... Um, on a, uh, a social media uh, platform briefly the other day, and my, my daughter's had some back pain uh, related to basketball, and so uh, somebody in our family was looking at something related to back pain, and now it's like, bam, there's ads about sciatica and stuff, you know, and it's like they, they know, like, these things, and they feed content that is, that is feeding who we are. It, it feeds self. Some of that is not bad, but much of it means we're just going to be reinforcing what is, what is true. It also reflects culture, so it's not simply what do you want, but it reflects the larger values of the culture around us. Anytime you watch something, a, a TV show or a movie uh, or other things, consider what is being presented here that is the, the perspective of our culture. Really, it's, the, it's what is the worldview that is being presented. That, that cult, those cultural values are reflective of a view of the world. When we say worldview, we just mean the lens through which somebody sees the world. So the biblical worldview says God is the creator. He's the owner of everything. He's the authority who's wise and good. And we want to think and believe what God has said. The secular worldview says there is no God, and if there is, we don't like him, and we don't want to do what he says. Those are two vastly different perspectives of how we think and respond. And that trickles down into all kinds of specific examples. Like we, we already talked about masculinity and femininity. How are those things pictured in the larger media of our world? Well, not, not in a biblical way. Women are presented as Objects, physical objects to be desired because of, of their external beauty or in a sexual way. You know, oftentimes authority is presented as very foolish or selfish, even the family dynamics that will shape your kids' thinking. Most movies present dysfunction to degree in the family where they present something like, you know, the kids are smart and right and the parents are, are not. You know, the... The, there's redefinition of gender or marriage, so much more common now, you know, to see homosexual relationships or other things, even in younger uh, media that's targeted at, at younger uh, folks. 
there's an intentional worldview that is being presented, and media is a powerful influence. You can say, well, not on us. We're smarter than that. Well, t- tonight is, is the Super Bowl. People pay a lot of money to have commercials on the Super Bowl. Why? Because people are influenced through media. It, it's, it's a reality that the things we, we um, ingest into our brains affect and shape our thinking. Now, we can be careful with that, and we'll talk more about that, but there's a reason why people spend billions of dollars on advertising, because it works. Media does influence. You know, when, when my kids were growing up, we didn't have all the things that are available now. I, I remember the Cubo channel was like a kid's program that I think we could get without a cable subscription, and, and it had some different things. But it had weird ads, too. That I remember there was um, Pillow Pets. My kids all of a sudden started talking to me about, we want a pillow, uh, pillow pet. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, well, it's a, it's a pillow and a pet or something. And I'm like, well, that's exciting. Um, we, we, you already have a pillow. And, um, and I don't really want a pet, so what's, um, why do we need this? But it's like, it turns out that was like a repeated commercial on there. And my kids thought, you know, man, life would be complete if I only had a pillow pet. And I'm like, I don't think so. You know, and the, and then, but then they had things like debt management ads, too, for like the parents. So like when the kids are starting to ask me about like, you know, our debt situation, it's like, okay, what's going on here? Like, um, but those things shape and influence they shape and influence our kids, they can shape and influence us. We have to understand and recognize that. We, we also need to think carefully about technology. Technology reflects the creative nature of God. Isaiah 54, 16 and 17 said, Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon. I've created uh, the destroyer to ruin. No re- weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you will condemn God says, I am the one who has given the ability to use technology. God is creative, and he's given wisdom and intellect to people. Technology in and of itself is not inherently evil. It's a reflection of the creative nature of God. At the same time, it can be used for good or for evil. That same technology that allows someone to to build a, a better plow can be used as a sword to kill somebody. And in our day and age, technology has dramatically increased access to media. There's a lot we could think about with technology and its use today, but I want us to think primarily about how it has increased access to media. Again, you, you mentioned some of the technologies from times you were growing up, and even those of you with older children, how much things are different today. And you think about the, the reality, like what we have in our pockets, most of us, a phone, which is a more powerful computer than anything I had growing up or my children had growing up, and I can carry it with me, and I have access to stuff all the time in a way that is very unique compared to most of human history. And, and so there are blessings that come from that, <laughs> And there are tremendous temptations and challenges that come from that, both from a godliness perspective and worldview and just a a practical reality of the influence on us as people. 
So we have to understand and think carefully about media and technology. There's a, uh, a number of books that are helpful to think through in this way. Um, Tim Challies has a book, the, the Next Story, that uh, was written a number of years ago, but it still has a very helpful framework to think about some of these things and, and others. What is our role then regarding media and technology? Turn, turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is a psalm that reminds us of the blessing of children and it gives a, a framework of God's work in our family. It has that familiar verse, behold, children are a gift of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children's of one youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. But it begins this way, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives his beloved even in his sleep. It's a, it's a reminder that, that God is ultimately the one who works and who accomplishes the building of the home and the, the protection of the city. But he's not saying in that context that you, the laborer should not work and that the guards shouldn't guard. He, he's describing really the, the, the dual purpose of, of or the, the dual role that we have to do things as a family and as parents, although our attitude is to recognize that unless God is at work in this, it will ultimately not prove successful. And, and in this psalm, you see the idea of building and you see the idea of protection. That, I think, is, is a picture of, of what we are called to be and to do as parents. One of the roles and responsibilities that we have with our children is that of protecting them. Again, can you protect them from everything? No. Watchmen, you can guard as much as you can, and unless the Lord is, is, is involved in that, we, we simply cannot control all of the things and the realities in our kids' lives. But one of the jobs of parents and the role of authority that we have is to protect our children. You know, we tend to think I need to protect my kids. That's true, but we also need to think I need to protect my family and myself. All of the influences that are out there wanting to shape your kids will also shape you if you're not careful. Um, we need to think of this from everything from access to sexually explicit content that is rampant to worldview and the things that shape how we think. So we have a, a key role of protection with our kids, but it's also preparation and training. We've talked about how our authority slowly goes down with our kids in the sense that we cannot make them do things the way we could when they were an infant. And our influence should be increasing. That's what we are striving to do in this area. You know, think about your kids and driving. Some of you have kids who are, are 15 or older who you've gone through uh, that permit process to get their license. Some of you are like, I cannot imagine that day someday. Um, when your kids are going to drive, you know, it's, I, I hope you don't just say, hey, you got your permit. You know, here's the keys. Let's do it. You know, where do you want to go? 
Um, my wife has been the primary instructor for our girls, for which I'm very thankful, and she does great with it, and she starts here in the church parking lot, not like on a Sunday morning, but when there's nobody around, and she picks an area where the light posts are very far apart and protect, hopefully protected by curbs so that we're not going to hit those, and she starts very slowly with them and lets them demonstrate both a willingness to listen. When I say something, you, you do it right away. And a, a willingness to, and a, and a comfort level with reacting. You know, when something is a little stressful, do they remember which one's the gas pedal and which one's the brake? Because we want to know that difference. We want that to be fairly intuitive before we are on a road with other people. Um, and then she slowly goes to neighborhood driving and eventually to other things. So we, we don't just toss them the keys. Let's go, you know. We, we have a swimming pool in our backyard, and, and, you know, there's a couple ways we can handle that. You know, we have nieces and nephews who live close who come over a lot, and we are careful to keep the door locked and, and to keep an eye on them and to know, but we also are intentional to help them learn how to swim because part of what we want to do is protect them, but part of it is we want to prepare them, and we know that long-term protection is ultimately them being prepared. Mom's not always going to be in that car with that daughter telling her, hey, you know, there's flashing lights up there. Make sure you're paying attention and get over. You know, we're not always going to be there in those situations. And so we need to protect, but we also need to prepare. How do we, how do, we do that? Let's think about our goals regarding media and technology. I, I would suggest we could take those roles and primarily say two things. We want to shape what media and technology influence your child's life. You want to shape what media and technology influence their lives. You want to limit their exposure to things. We'll talk more about how to do that practically in just a minute. Um, but we, we have a job and a role of saying, okay, there are certain things we do not want to shape our thinking. That may mean we don't have them shape our thinking at all, or it may mean we limit how much exposure and how much that's shaping our thinking in those ways. You know, but the reality is we cannot live in isolation your entire life. Therefore, we must also be shaping how media and technology influence your children's lives. You want to equip them to live in a world with media and technology and, and that which is changing. If all I do is help my kids know how to function in today's world with today's challenges, well, 10 years from now, there's going to be a whole host of new things, and we want them to be able to think and make decisions and to be wise in how those things affect them. So what does that look like in practice? Let's consider our practice regarding media and technology. The first thing we have to strive to do is to be knowledgeable about these things. Some of you, your kids are very young, and that is a blessing. Um, at this season, and as they get older, they're going to want to watch things or get apps or do things that you don't know much about. And you have a decision to make. You can say, ignorance is bliss. I would love to stick my head in the sand, and I would love to just, you know, roll with it, and I don't want to create waves, and I don't want to say no, and so you go for it. That is not the way that God would call us to live. You know, we could look at First Samuel with Eli, God held him responsible for the sins of his boys. He knew something was up. He probably didn't engage as much as he should have. Um, 
we need to be knowledgeable of these things, both knowledgeable of what they are doing, what they can do, how much time they're spending on things, and knowledgeable about what the actual things they want to do are. You know, this used to be simpler. Don't put a TV or a computer in your kid's room. Now there's portable devices that create more challenges, and we'll talk more about that. But the reality is, guys, don't let them have it or watch it. If you don't know what it is or what it can do, or you don't know what kids do with it, or if you can't monitor their use of it. You know, when our kids, as they've gotten older, have asked for certain things, um, you know, oftentimes my wife or I, you know, will get that first and decide, you know, what, what is this used for? We, we were um, driving home from a basketball tournament this, this uh, yesterday, and I got a notification, Chris uh, and I got a notification on our phone that one of our daughters wanted a specific app for the car ride. She was with friends, and, and you know, so we asked her, what, why do you want that app? What is this? And, and, um, and it was something that we didn't know. She gave us some use for it that allowed uh, something, I don't even know exactly what it was. But, um, but it was like, we don't know enough about this to know like, what people really do with this. And so, no, sorry, you can't have it. Like, play Ticket to Ride on the iPad or something. Like, you're fine. Um, you know, it's, uh, or, or, you know, yeah, yeah, your pillow pet. Lay on your pillow pet. Um, go to sleep. Um, you know, those things. So it's like, we got to be knowledgeable about things. That takes work and effort. Sometimes that takes talking to other people who know more than you. It may take talking to a college student who's godly and saying, hey, uh, my, my 15-year-old wants this app. Can you tell me anything about it? Like, what do people use this for, and should I? And if they say, uh, no, don't, then, okay, thanks. That's all I need to know. Be involved, secondly. Be knowledgeable and be involved. Again, this takes effort. There's not specific biblical commands of what this looks like, but it means we have to be actively engaged and involved with our kids. I'll share some things that have been helpful in, in our family, you know, things like when our kids got cell phones, and, and we can think a little more about that process, um, and they were learning to text with, um, with friends. Well, text messaging is a very different form of communication, and some of it is just thinking about what and who they're texting, but some of it's just learning how to communicate well. Like, I'm more of an emoji guy when it comes to texting. Like, if you send me something, I'm going to probably like it or give you a thumbs up, partially because I struggle. Now I can talk into it, so that helps me. But, um, but I don't send long things, and I've got a couple daughters who are wired that way too. And so if, if their friend sends something that is like pouring out their heart to them, and they like it, you know, and it's like, yeah, that probably didn't communicate quite what you wanted to in that moment. And... Um, and, um, and so helping them to know how to function. So I can't tell you how many text messages my wife has looked at before they're sent or, or uh, those kinds of things because we want to help them grow in their use of those things. 
You know, on, when our kids have gotten uh, some, some social media things over, over the years. And, and, you know, it's been our practice that, you know, we're on that as well, one of us or both of us. Sometimes I've had their account or my wife has had their account on our phone as well so we can see everything that they're seeing or doing. We get all the same stuff that they get um, or uh, in those ways. You know, even with media and movies, I remember a, mo- a movie came out a number of years ago when my, I think my oldest was maybe in middle school, High School Musical. And it was like, um, you know, not, not the worst movie that you could ever see, but it was, it was painting a picture of, of what heaven looks like for teenagers. That's not true. And that is all about relationships and different things. And, and it was something that, you know, our girls were hearing people talk about, and they were learning songs because people were singing them, and, and they hadn't seen the movie. And so finally we said, okay, we'll watch the movie, and we'll watch it together, and we'll talk about it. And so, you know, not the most fun movie experience when you're watching it, and you're like stopping and asking, but like, hey, what, what, what's going on with that? And, you know, and not real fun for us, and not real fun for our girls, but it was helpful to talk through those things. And, and we felt like that was a, a, a wise thing for us to do because of the, the it, was, it was a helpful thing for us to talk about. So a willingness to be involved, not just checking out and saying, yeah, sure, do that, um, but engaging in those things. So be knowledgeable, be involved. Third, be the authority. You're their parent. You need to be willing to exercise the authority God has given you for the good of your kids. Your kids don't have a right to media and technology use. Even if they buy it themselves, you still have responsibility for it. Like if they save up and they buy a Nintendo Switch or something and they feel like now I have the right to play this whenever I want. No, you don't. You live in my house, and, and it was probably mostly my money that you, you got from like doing chores for me. And, uh, and so, no, it's not yours to do with whatever you want. We are still the authority in that way. This means a willingness to say no to things. Your kids will tell you things, like everybody else gets to do this, or everybody else has one. Everybody else is on this. It's not true. Um, but even if it is true, you're their parent, and you get to make decisions about what is best for them. Kids are different. Things that really influence or are a negative thing for one child may not be for somebody else. Uh, and you need to be the authority. You need to be willing to say no. Now, if you always say no just because it's easier to say no, your kids will get frustrated eventually. You will, they, they will push back on that. And, but if you thoughtfully engage in things and you make decisions that are best for your kids you are exercising your God-given role in a way that is healthy for your children. You also need to think about the use of technology to limit things. You know, technology, as I mentioned, can be used for good or for evil. And thankfully, as technology advances, there are also ways to monitor and limit that technology. We are thankful for... um, the screen time restrictions and other things that are available on portable devices. Don't think that the only option is my child has no phone or my child has utterly unrestricted access to anything they want on a phone. No, there's, there's middle of the road things. 
You can remove things like internet on your kid's phone. You can restrict what apps they can have on a phone. Uh, You can limit the amount of time that they can spend on a particular app. One of the great joys and sanctification in our family right now is our younger two daughters share an Apple ID, which means they share the, the time limits on certain apps. And they're always telling me, apparently neither of them ever use any of the apps because it's always the sister who has used the time. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's a bummer, you know. Um, but that's okay. It was only like 15 minutes anyway. And so... Um, not a big deal, you know. So, it, but the, we're very thankful for those things that can help us to to um, uh, to to control and limit that use without ultimately never allowing some of those things. Honestly, those are helpful for us. Like it's helpful for us to have screen time restrictions on our devices and to be reminded of of things because we ju- it, it's it just envelops all of life if we're not careful. You know, one of the joys as our girls got older was telling them, hey, guess what? Now you have control over the time limits on your apps. What do you think would be wise for you at this stage of life in these ways? But we're not going to manage that forever in your life. So the use of technology uh, to limit time, to limit exposure, um, there's a number of resources that are helpful. Um, We can talk more about those things. And really talking to other parents, and, and there's helpful information um, online um, as well. The, the use of passwords to protect things is important. You know, like those screen time things on the phone, if you have the authority to get in there and make changes, you, you know, it's pretty limited on the effectiveness unless it's just a, a real uh, personal conviction uh, issue. But you want to be careful what your kids have access to, um, you know, whether that's um, on, on uh, devices that they can stream things, can be getting onto a device where parents have to put in a password for them to use a device, um, other passwords as well. So be the authority over your kids' technology and media use. Um, and then fourthly, be reasonable with your kids' media or technology use. Again, if you view it as no until you are out of my house, you are not going to have the opportunity to prepare them to live in today's world. You want to teach them to drive, teach them to swim. At the same time, you want to protect them along the way. And so those are things that you have to help them make wise decisions. You have to be um, intentional in what you choose to allow or not allow as you work through those things. Um, So media and technology, think carefully about it. Recognize the influence and be involved and engaged as a parent, protecting and preparing your kids for the future. Just briefly, want to talk about adolescence and the teenage years. You know, many parents in this room have teenagers. <laughs> many in this room are a long way from teenagers. You know, our culture, one of the things that is presented about teenagers and parenting is that those years are going to be awful. Mm-hmm that it's only a matter of time before your kids rebel, and this is the reality that you're going to face. I can't tell you how many times when I was walking around a grocery store with five little girls that people would say, ooh, you're in for it down the road. Now, they're not wrong in the sense that it becomes challenging in ways that are, are more difficult than, uh, than, than changing diapers, but that's a terrible way to, to think about uh, the future of parenting. 
Uh, I appreciate Paul David Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity. He, he describes, it's about parenting teenagers. It's a helpful book. And he, he basically says, this is the golden years of parenting. This is when you get to really engage at a heart level with your kids in, in seeking to parent them well. Now, it's not without challenges, but it is a, a, a unique season. So recognize first just the, the, the myth of adolescence that has been cultivated in our world. You know, our world says there's this awkward time between childhood and adulthood. You just need to survive it and get through it unscathed. If they aren't pregnant or addicted to drugs, we've successfully navigated the teen years. Really, the, the, there is something about youth in the Bible. There, that is a season that is there. But the, the normal pattern of what the Bible presents is we go from immaturity in childhood towards maturity of adulthood. So there's not this, you know, teenage period where it's like, okay, we can just be okay with, you know, utterly losing our minds and doing whatever we want, and then we come back to sanity down the road. That's not how God intends. He intends there to be continued growth towards maturity. Doesn't mean there aren't unique challenges in that process, but we don't need to buy that lie and we don't need to be uh, promoting that with our kids, that this is just the reality of what's going to happen. We also don't need to buy into the certainty of teen rebellion. You know, every teen rebels, right? It's a time of self-exploration. If they don't go through it, they'll never make their own convictions. Not true. Some teens do rebel. Some teens rebel strongly. Um, even those raised in good homes and godly homes by faithful parents can rebel. But it is not necessary for kids to rebel against authority or against the Lord. We want to see their hearts embrace his authority, and we want to be cultivating that expectation with our kids. Now, sometimes I think this is a self-fulfilling prophecy for parents where they, they talk uh, often about you know, with, with fear and trepidation about the teenage years with their kids, and their kids are like, well, I guess that's what it's supposed to be like. So, okay, I will push every limit that I can. We need to instead talk about the teenage years with expectation and anticipation, not dread, communicating high expectations, not your own high expectations of good grades and, and you'll be a fabulous this and that, but the high expectations that this is a beautiful season of life to grow and, and it's a time of singleness that the Bible says is a, a period of undistracted devotion to the Lord and, and we want to help our kids to think in those ways. You know, one of the things that this means is that we are, are seeking to cultivate trust in our kids and, and responsibility with the reward that comes from with, with more responsibility. You know, talking to your kids about things like, oh, I want to be great when you have demonstrated the faithfulness so that we could leave you by yourself at home. Like, man, wouldn't that be, that be cool when you are responsible enough that we can trust you and, and the government says it's legal for us to leave you at home by yourself. Like this is not your four-year-old, you know, who's just really mature for their age. But, um, but this is, you know, but talking in those ways with your kids, that the joy of faithfulness is increased opportunity and responsibility. It wouldn't be cool if, if when, when you're old enough that you could watch your niece or your nephew and, and be helpful in that way. Or, or, you know, you could earn money by mowing someone else's yard because you do such a good job on our yard and there's that demonstrated faithfulness in those ways. We want to help our kids recognize that God's 
design is for their good. And as we are training and, and, and teaching them those things, it leads to future opportunity and blessing and responsibility. What do we do with the challenges of the teen years? Just briefly, remember the goal is not survival, it's preparation. It's not just get through it. <laughs> as I mentioned, it's not just, hey, thankfully they're not pregnant or addicted to drugs. That's our goal. No, we have a higher standard and goal than that. It's preparation for a future life, which is why we have to balance protecting your kids with influencing them and why we need to begin preparing your children for these issues earlier than you think you probably need to. Because our kids will be exposed to things just in conversations and interactions and grocery store lines and other things earlier than we expect. Doesn't mean that we need to tell them everything that there is to know about issues, but it does mean that we need to be addressing them and we wanna be sure we're painting the full biblical picture on these issues. You know, you think of things like talking to your kids about sex, about physical intimacy and what God has presented about that. We don't wanna just tell our kids no, sex is bad. That's not true. The biblical view is sex is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing gift from God that is, is to be uh, enjoyed in the context of a monogamous marriage relationship. That's how God has designed this to be good. And we want to help our kids think that way. Now, does that mean that when your seven-year-old says, hey, Dad, where do babies come from, that you need to go into that whole speech in every detail? Uh, now, you, you can feel them out, what they're really wanting to know, you know, they may be wondering, you know, is it a stork or the hospital, like where, you, you don't have to, you know, go beyond the level where they're thinking, but you do need to be teaching that full biblical perspective in those ways. Um, your kids need to understand the realities of God and his word uh, so that they can think carefully and rightly about the realities uh, in our world. You know, if, you're, if your child's struggling with issues, if they're struggling in rebellion, they're struggling in, in other, um, other ways, you know, related to, uh, to the kinds of things that are common challenges in that age, I encourage you to be careful not to overreact. You want your kids to communicate with you. If your kids tell you something that they're struggling with or they tell you something that happened at a friend's house or they tell you things and you overreact, guess what's going to happen? They're going to stop communicating with you about that. Doesn't mean you don't react. Doesn't mean you don't take steps. Doesn't mean you don't have conversations. Doesn't mean there's not consequences. But you want to create a context where you can keep communication open. You, you want to have your kids know that they can talk to you about the real issues of life. And you're going to help them to think carefully about those things from a biblical perspective. You're going to be compassionate towards them. You're going to uh, also be the authority who is helpful in that way. Keep the focus on the heart and the gospel. There's hope. That's one thing with Age of Opportunity. If you have teenagers or you're about to, encourage you to read that book because it's really helpful on thinking about how we address the heart. And, and, it, and one big thing that needs to change in those things is we go from monologue to dialogue. <laughs> you know, that 
Uh, it's not uncommon for Christy to say that line from The Incredibles, you know, you're monologuing again. When I'm just talking to the girls, and they're old enough that I don't need to talk to them anymore. I mean, I do sometimes, but I, but I need to ask them questions and draw out their heart and see what they're thinking and what they already know and how they can think about the Scriptures applying to their life, because they're not always going to have a dad there to tell them exactly how to think in every situation, and, and they, they, they need to be growing in that themselves, and I want to understand their heart. I don't just want to know, yeah, you'll nod and smile when I say something. I want to know what's going on with you. And so we need to focus on the heart and the gospel. There's hope. Even in the midst of grievous sin, foolish life decisions, there is help and hope. And God is gracious, and we want to help them to recognize and understand those things. Do be careful, though, in that, not to totally insulate them from consequences. You look at the book of Proverbs, and one of the best ways that God um, works in the fool is by bringing consequences into their life. And so as parents, we wanna be careful not to insulate our kids from every consequence. Doesn't mean that we aren't gracious towards them, but when they do foolish things, it's okay for them to, to face the consequences of that. Yeah, yeah, you know, when my, when, when, one of my girls got a speeding ticket. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you get to pay for it, and you get to pay for the defensive driving so it doesn't go on, your, on your, uh, your record, and you need to learn to drive appropriately. Like, we, we, we want to be compassionate. We want to help, but we want to allow our kids to face the consequences when those consequences are going to help them grow and mature, Lord willing. Now, will they always? No, they might be stubborn. They might try to get better at knowing where the police are and continue to drive how they want to, but they will suffer the consequences of that as they go. So be careful not to totally insulate your kids from the consequences at the same time to walk through life with them and to be a support. Lastly, and real briefly, uh, don't want to need to spend much time on this, but one of the things in our day and age that is a challenge is is just issues with sports and other hobbies and the, the realities of how consuming these things are. Again, this is a change from how many of us grew up. You know, when I grew up, it was like baseball was three months out of the year, and um, then you did something else, or you didn't do anything for nine months. Now it's like this consuming thing where if your seven-year-old is not devoting, you know, 15 hours a week, you know, 50 weeks out of the year, you got no hope of playing as a nine-year-old. And it's just a, a, a very different perspective that we need to recognize and guard against. You know, sports are a blessing, and, and other hobbies can help our kids learn and grow. We just came back from a basketball tournament that we had a great, great time as a family at. Um, and there were opportunities for sanctification for me as a coach and for my girls as players and us as parents, and, and we're thankful for those things. But we do need to keep them in perspective. T.J. Mahaney wrote a little booklet, Don't Waste Your Sports. He said this, often as parents, we think we've fulfilled our duty by simply attending our children's games and cheering. Not so, we're called to so much more. Informed by the gospel, we're called to lead our children wisely. Before the game, this includes preparing them to keep biblical priorities in mind while they play. After the game, this includes celebrating their expressions of godly character more than we celebrate their skill or the final score. Every moment our children spend in sports or other hobbies is a teaching moment. He gives the following few suggestions for parents so that we don't waste our children's sports or other hobbies. He gives four principles that I think are helpful. Celebrate godliness. He mentioned that, looking for character in your kids. 
being more excited when your daughter comes off the bench at a timeout and gives everybody a high five and is an encourager than when she makes a three-pointer. Recognizing that we want to prioritize character development. Now, sports gives lots of opportunities and other hobbies for that. It gives lots of chances to grow and be squeezed and see the need for greater character growth and development. And, and for that, we're thankful. But think about it. Would you rather them win with a bad attitude or lose with good character? Would you rather them be the best athlete on the team or, or the best encourager on the team? Would you rather them make the winning shot or genuinely congratulate the teammate or, or sibling who did? You know, we want to celebrate godliness. Doesn't mean we don't also enjoy the success that comes or the things that they do on the, on the court or the field or in the, uh, in the um, you know, the choir or whatever it is where they are excelling. That's great. But we want to celebrate godliness. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 reminds us that physical training is of limited value in this life. It fades. But godliness has value for eternity and we want to reflect that in our, in our parenting. I encourage you also to, to prize your family, not, not to the exclusion of other things, but don't let sports consume your family. Um, I was talking to a dad a number of years ago. They had two kids, and, and they, basically the parents were taking them in opposite directions all of the time, and they, for like six months out of the year, they almost never had a meal together, rarely were together. I mean, we, we knew the dad because he was bringing his daughter to basketball for a lot of years, and I think we saw the mom like, once, you know, maybe, um, you know, just, just a, a very uh, consuming reality because of how they'd chosen to prioritize their time and, and the level of engagement in those things. And so we want to just be careful that we don't sacrifice other priorities. One of those is the local church. We need to love our local church. And we need to make decisions that prioritize engagement and involvement in the local church over commitments that we could make to sports teams. You know, at some point, this may mean that your child doesn't have the opportunities that you wish they had in today's world. You, you may go to a coach and say, hey, we're not, we don't do games. We don't do practice on Wednesdays because our kids are in youth group or things, and we don't, we don't do games Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and they may say, well, sorry, you can't play. Well, you've just taught your kid what is an appropriate priority. Now, I think there's more latitude here than we think. We feel that pressure sometimes. And sometimes if you find the right coach and the right opportunities, they'll say, great. And, and you may find the right opportunities where they say, you know what, we believe that too. And we're intentionally trying to cultivate these things. But we cannot sacrifice the worship of the Lord and the engagement in the local church for sports or other hobbies. And, and fourth, we need to view this as training for life. You know, why do we do these things? It's not because your kid is going to make, make it I mean, maybe if they do, we'll watch them on TV. It'll be fun. But, but it's, it's training for life. It's because we want to see them grow and develop and mature, and we want to keep that focus. You know, we, uh, uh, in, in the tournament, we lost a couple games that were not as fun, um, and, you know, it's tempting to focus on the outcome instead of focusing on the opportunity to be together and the character and those things that God would use to grow us as we seek to follow him. So, guys, let's think carefully as parents. Let's encourage each other in that way. You know, one of the joys of the church is striving together to be faithful in, in honoring Christ in these relationships. Doesn't mean your family has to look exactly like the, the people sitting next to you, 
but it does mean we are committed to the same priorities, striving together in that way. If we can be a help or blessing to you in that process, we want to be. Um, it's it's uh, our joy as church leadership, as elders and pastors, and uh, to to engage with people. If you have questions or would benefit from just some interaction, there's a lot of godly people in our church, and our, our leadership is eager to engage in those things. So please don't hesitate to to reach out if we can serve you in that way. And, uh, and find faithful parents in the context of fellowship in the church, Sunday school classes and other things that you can grow f- uh, with and, and you can learn from. If you've never been to a regular Sunday school class in our church, if this was the first time you engaged in something other than our worship service, let me encourage you, there's regular classes that meet all year round and there's great opportunities for fellowship in those classes. And so uh, consider that even as you're uh, considering future weeks of your schedule. So let me pray and uh, if you have Questions will be around and love to interact more. Father, we're thankful for the time in this class. Thank you for each one who's been a part of it. We are grateful for your word that instructs us and gives us wisdom. Help us to think carefully about the role you've given us. Help us to think carefully about the issues of our day. Help us to lead our families in a way that uh, is honoring to you. And we pray that our kids would grow to know and love you that they would surpass us in their devotion to Christ and their knowledge of Christ and their maturity in Christ. Lord, use us to that end as individuals. Use us as a church. Thank you that we are not alone in our parenting journey, but that you have given us the support of the body of Christ, both to help us as parents and to help our kids. We're grateful for those things. In Christ's name, amen.